Hey everyone, this is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end of year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So, if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. Mike Colomaco here. <clears throat> you know, I should mention, we have a little spot in the beginning, um, whoever, whoever, whoever's voice that was. But if you're listening to Heritage Radio, this is a nonprofit radio station, non-commercial radio station. And they've got a great, they've got a, kind of a matching thing this week. We're going to sound like NPR for a minute. But if you like what you're hearing, if you like this station, um, we exist really in, in large part thanks to the, to the beneficence of our listeners, as does the public um, the other public media, right? Public radio. Is that my phone? Oh, you should shut your phone off when you do radio. I'm supposed to know that. Oh well. Um, in any case, if you if you if you feel like donating, it's a great. We have a, we have I think 35, 40 great shows. Um, donate anything you want: five, ten, fifteen, twenty bucks. We have a matching grant this week, so it's kind of cool. Somebody stepped up. The chef's collaborative stepped up and decided for every dollar we can raise this week, they'll match it with a dollar. So hey. You, you put a couple dollars in, they'll match with a couple dollars, and we can keep this program coming at you for years on end. We've grown a lot. We've got a couple million listeners a month now. So it's a growing space. So there, that's that's my shilling for Heritage Radio. Open up your wallets and be nice. It's that time of year. It's the holiday time. I can't ask you in January, can I, because you're going to say no. So anyway, and, and this is the last show for me until January, because we take a break for a couple of weeks. The whole station kind of goes dark, so... I think I'm traveling at the beginning of January for a bit, so I'm not sure when I'm back. I think it looks like the 19th, I think, is the actual first show that I'm back live again. We've got a good, fast show today. We've got three guests. Um, <clears throat> the first two I'll run through real fast with you. Uh, Dr. Mark Tamplin, who put a book out called The Food Safety Book. Um, he'll be guest number one. Then I've got Chef Suvir Saran coming on. He's got a restaurant in the village now called Tapestry. Um, you might know him from Bravo's 
Top Chef Masters. Um, real charismatic guy, real smart guy. He's got a great backstory. Um, grew up in New Delhi, does kind of modern Indian fusion food. I don't never know what to call food these days, but I'll let him tell you what he does. Um, Dana Tapstreet has a bunch of books out that you may have seen. And then we're going to switch gears completely, um, come back to the studio, and we've got Kara Warren in, and we're going to talk about French cheese. Yeah, that's right. Specifically the cheeses from around Normandy, cheeses with some great history and cheeses that you've heard of, but maybe we can shine a light on some things that uh, you didn't know. She is a cheese head. I don't know what to call people that are no cheese. Cheese heads, okay, that'll work. Or does that make you Green Bay Packers fan? Cheesemonger? Cheesemonger. Yeah. yeah, she's great. But she's been in, I mean, did the usual New York stuff, worked at Murray's, worked in these great stores. Uh, now she's the East Coast um, rep for one of the producers in the region. And the French leather cheese, and I love my cheese, so that's what. And, and we're also going to pair some wines, which is really kind of a, a, a nice selection. The wines came before the cheese came, and I'm looking at the wines. I'm going like, I know these wines. Like, who picked these wines? Who, these are really good wines. Like, you got a Petit Chablis, you've got a Gamay, you've got a Right Bank Bordeaux that I know I'm going to love. That's you know Merlot driven, super fruit on the nose. Well, I don't know what super fruit on the nose. I'm guessing we haven't really poured it in a glass yet, but I've been there enough. Anyway, food safety book, Doctor Mark Tamplin. Do I have you on the phone, sir? You do, Michael. It's hey, a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be with you. So tell me, the doctor part in your name stands for what? A doctor of? I'm a doctor of medical microbiology who, over the years, has specialized in food microbiology and food safety. Do you work with companies to help, like, get HACCP plans in order and that kind of stuff? Yes, I do. Yeah, a lot of our uh, clients are, are, are the food companies. We do some work with governments to help them, you know, work with companies to set some regulations and such that are reasonable for industry to follow. But, uh, yeah, sort of cover both sides of it. It's fascinating business, isn't it? So I used to be, there was, I was a chef for the bulk of my life, and then there was a little stretch there in the 90s when I did something else before I did this. And for, during that stretch, I was in the import business, which I'd sort of been in and out of uh, in, in a way for years. And one of the things that we did, one of the hats that we wore was if you were selling big companies in America, like, say, PepsiCo or, or ConAgra or whatever, you had to get your fa- – any, any, any ingredient that you were selling to any of those places, the factories had to be audited and pass that audit, which means they had to have, you know, back, back then it was ISO something or other, and, of course, HACCP, HACCP. But, you know, when you visit factories and, and you realize, holy mackerel, it's amazing where people aren't dying every day, isn't it? Well, I, yeah, I tell you, over my career, people have asked me that question is, you know, what do I eat or what do I, what do I not eat? A lot of people think, um, like, I like to eat oysters, and they think I'm a bit crazy doing it. But what I've learned is that we've got a pretty strong immune system. You know, humans are pretty, pretty resilient when it comes to bacteria and that type of thing. And we have to be careful. But that's what we have going in our favor. So if we didn't have a good immune system, and, of course, the worst foodborne illnesses, Mike, that we see are people that are immunocompromised. Yeah. You know, those are the ones that get the really serious ones. And, and that's where most of our food safety regulations are set. It's for the, the most vulnerable in the society. Makes sense. So what made you w- want to put this book out? Because there's, I mean, this is almost like kind of a, this book lands on my desk. And I don't do a lot of book interviews. And I mean, there's so much, and this, and this isn't a cookbook either at all. Um, again, the title of the book is the Food Safety Book. It's authored by Joe Kivett and Mark Tamplin, with also uh, Dr. Uh, Gerard, Gerard J. Kivett, whom, whom we don't have, so we have Mark Tamplin on, on the phone with me. But what made the three of you want to put this book out? 
Well, really, from a practical standpoint of just being, a, you know, being consumers ourselves, is that when we, you know questions come up about how to handle foods, yes, that information is out there on the internet as well as you know other sources and libraries. But what we wanted to do was we we wanted to you know create efficiency for a home consumer, pull all of that information together, have it as updated as possible, and provide that for a person to use in their kitchen for everyday questions that they have around holiday time if they're traveling. Um, you know, and just normal preparation and cooking times and such that you would have in your home kitchen. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it almost reminds you of something they, they should use as the textbook of the Culinary Institute or Johnson and Wales or the cooking schools. Because this is, I mean, we studied things like this back then, but, but you are aiming it for the consumer. So we're going to, so here, here's what the book looks like, folks. It, it starts out with, I mean, this really covers all the bases, purchasing your food, storing your food, expiration dates, uh, the longevity of stored goods, how to handle things in your kitchen, preparing foods safe cooking practices, holiday safety, all, all the bases are covered. Foodborne illnesses, I think, towards the end of the book. Um, but I thought with the holidays coming up, we'd hone in on a couple of things. Uh, kitchen safety, this is something that I, I think people sort of get or don't get. Let's talk about this idea, because I, I, I've been, ever since I ran restaurants, I've sort of taken that same mentality into my house kitchen, just a lot less moving parts at home. But one of the things we always kept was that bleach and water solution for really doing the best job for cleaning all cutting surfaces, for cleaning knives, for cleaning cutting boards, for cleaning countertops. Talk about how easy it is to make that and what the what the proportions are um, of bleach per water and then how do, you, how do you use that for, again, for cleaning cutting boards and food contact surfaces. Sure. Um, so the, the key thing with, uh, with sanitizing, so we separate the, the term sanitizing from cleaning and because sanitizers like, like using bleach or even using those hand, um, you know, hand um, sanitizers like alcohol-based sanitizers, they only work well if the surface is already clean. So what we want to start off and tell customers is that you really have to have those surfaces clean with some kind of detergent. After you do that and rinse them off with water, that's when you apply your sanitizer. So you can put a couple of teaspoons of bleach into a gallon of water for, say, a non-porous surface, something that's not going to soak it up. But if it's something that could harbor bacteria like wood, uh, something more porous, we recommend putting a couple of tablespoons of bleach into a gallon of water. And then by putting that on the surface, that chlorine uh, attacks the surfaces of those bacteria and kills them. But the key thing to remember is that we have to have a clean surface before we can apply the sanitizers to get the best effect. And there's another solution that you use as well that I thought was great, which is a mix of vinegar and hydrogen peroxide. Talk about that. Yeah, you can you can mix peroxide, you can mix, you can use it alone, or you can do mixtures of it. So, you know, these are just common things that we might have in our home. Right. Peroxides are really, really toxic to bacteria, and they work extremely well. And in fact, they're probably better than, than if we use bleach. And, and so that's just a mix of, of hydrogen peroxide and any kind of, like, inexpensive, like when you buy that, uh, you know, like, just, like, distilled, like, any, like, white vinegar that comes in a gallon container, because we're not drinking or eating this. We're not using it for salad dressing. We're using it to clean. So that's another great solution uh, to mix up. Um, exactly. So I used to do a radio show with WOR, which is a huge radio station here in New York City for years, a show called Food Talk. And one of the responsibilities was to do the, the Thanksgiving show. It meant I had to come in at 6 in the morning um, and take everybody's Thanksgiving calls, which I hated because I'm not a morning guy. Um, but it never failed. Like, I'd get, I'd get there during the morning drive show, and I would, I'd be live till, till my show was over at noon. Um, and we'd, we'd probably get 10 phone calls an hour on 
<laughs> this is Thanksgiving morning. Like my turkey's not is is still frozen, kind of stuff. Uh, so talk a little bit about how you recommend because the holidays are coming up and people are going to be doing. I mean, Thanksgiving just passed, but people might be doing goose. They might be doing turkey for 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 Christmas. There might be doing how how, how do you defrost? I mean, I, I always told people you know put it in the defrost it in the refrigerator over a period of time. If you if you're buying them frozen or you know you want to solve the problem, buy them fresh. But what's what's your best solution for people for defrosting like large format? meats like a turkey or a frozen ham well you're exactly right what you said earlier is about the you know the best recommendation is to do it in a refrigerator that's that's the safest way the thing we're trying to also uh, you know eliminate when we thaw out these large products particularly poultry like turkey or and, and chickens too is that they carry a high proportion of salmonella yep. and another organism called Campylobacter that is quite bad when we get um, when we get infected with it. So the key thing is to keep those juices away from our kitchen area. So if we're doing it in the refrigerator, we have a better chance of not doing it. So we usually say allow 24 hours for every five pounds that you're thawing, um, but you can do it about. 10 times quicker if you want to do it in a sink. And I know many times we plant, we say we're going to do it in the, in the fridge, but then when it comes down to the day, we've realized it's not thawed yet. So we can put it into the sink, uh, put it in the sink, put it in some warm water, but we have to be sure that no part of that turkey stays above 40 degrees for more than two hours because that's that danger zone that we worry about where bacteria can grow. So the safest is in the fridge, plan ahead, and the other would be to do it into a, in a sink. Uh, another question that I'd love you to answer for me, um, there's, I, I don't know if it's just like a, a mommy myth or something, but it's pretty prevalent, which is people buy whole chickens or they can buy cut up chickens, but whatever. But there's this thought that you talked about salmonella and campylobacter. Um, a lot of people, when they buy poultry, especially chickens, rinse them. Is that of any value, and if it is, why? No, as a food safety specialist and a, and a microbiologist, I, I always tell my friends that, that tell me that. I say, well, you know, if, if the purpose is to wash off some bone dust, maybe. Right, you know, but if there is any bone dust. Actually, what you're doing is you're spreading those bacteria right. around in your sink, right. and on, your, on your countertop. So, and as far as, as rinsing, removing salmonella and campylobacter, Forget it. Thank you. Because I've seen this. I've seen people on TV do it. I've read it in books. I have friends that do it. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Like it's doing – if it's got salmonella, it's already there and you're just making it worse. Um, All right. So that's a myth we we can dispel. Um, Another question for you that seems to have become germane, I'd say in the last 15 years, we're seeing a lot more kind of farm-to-table ingredients coming coming into broader acceptance. So we've got farmers markets everywhere. We're getting to know maybe where our chickens come from. Maybe we're getting to know where our beef's coming from. And pork's kind of moved front and center. Um, we away from the sort of commodity production to smaller. You know, well now we know what a red wattle pig is, and you know who ever heard of pig breeds yeah. before. So I'm seeing it in restaurants, and I know myself when I cook it. I'm cooking pork now. If I'm paying $12 a pound for a really well-marbled pork chop that, that I know the provenance of, of that pig and where it comes from and, you know, it's been foraging, it's been out in the field eating or whatever it's been doing, 
is it, do you still recommend people cook pork beyond an internal temperature of 150 or 160 degrees? Um, that That's question A. And B, the reason for that was trichinosis. And are we seeing any trichinosis at all in, in the modern time? Well, I, I mean, we've seen a huge reduction in trichinosis, um, I guess probably as an advent of more commercial, you know, production of pigs over the last 50 or so years. Now, as you said, with with a, with a more um, cottage industry, um, smaller operations, I, I don't. I mean, I don't think people are feeding, you know, infected um, infected foods back to the pigs. In other words, keeping that cycle going. So, I, I'm not aware of any increase in the incidence of trichinosis. But when it comes to cooking pork, because we don't have that instance that we had a hundred years ago, we really only need to cook. The, uh, the pork to an internal temperature of 145 degrees. Uh, we can, you know, for at least three minutes at that temperature. Now, you can certainly go higher, but uh, 145 is a minimum. And that's the same temperature that we recommend for any whole cut, you know, be it beef, veal, lamb, pork steaks, and so on. Um, okay, another quick question. Uh, one of the you know, now, now that we've become sort of more aware as consumers of where things are coming from, there's been a lot of documentaries, there's been a lot of books written about it. We know that if you go to a supermarket and you're buying commodity ground meat as a genre, that in if you buy, a, a, you know, two pounds of ground, whatever they're calling it, you know, a chuck blend or something, that in that, in that little plastic pink plastic bag there could be meat from the carcasses of a hundred different cattle um and they they're actually there's another sort of dirty trick where they use something to like strip whatever's left off the bones and they add that kind of slop into it too so so what what's your take on ground meat and ground meat cooking and 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 food safety with again assuming because so much of the ground meat is coming from supermarkets it's coming from the you know ibp it's coming from the big the big factory farms what's your sense of safety within ground meat well, so going back to when we were talking about, let's just say, beef itself, you know, a whole primal, a whole piece of beef, the, the organisms we're worried about, that could, the, the E. coli's that are pathogenic, salmonella, whatever, they're on the surface. So when I said cook the inside to 145, if, you're, if the center is 145, obviously the outside is probably going to be 150, 160. Now when we then, as you talk about the, the mechanical... Um, you know, extraction of meats, the grinding of meats using trim and those types of things that go into ground products like hamburger patties. What we've now done is everything that was on the outside is now mixed completely through it. So it's not just a matter of getting to 145 then in the center because the organisms that we're worried about are not on the surface only. They're everywhere. So that's why we have to cook hamburgers um, and, you know, beef, veal, lamb, the, the pork products, if they're ground or if they're mechanical tenderized. You know, when, it, when they push needles into yep. the center of products, they can introduce things from the outside, and that's 160-degree temperature for hamburgers, anything that's a ground product. If it's chicken or turkey, it needs to be 165 because they carry a heavier load of pathogens than the other products. 
Again, my guest is uh, Dr. Mark Tample and his book, which is great. It's out in paperback. I don't know what it costs, probably 10, 15 bucks. Uh, but it's worth it. It's great because, again, I, I think that I, I would get asked a lot of these questions. I studied them. I was, I've been in the industry as a restaurant guy and as an importer and now as a, and of course, my whole life as a consumer. But it's sort of like one stop shopping. And, and we didn't go into a lot of what's in this book, which is interesting, which is like expiration dates. How long do you keep stuff in your freezer? But it's like you've covered it from soup to nuts here. So it's great. This book should be like in everybody's home. One, one last thing is it, would I be right in saying that the majority of or a, a high percentage of the foodborne illness people get from eating out or eating at home in this country is coming from shellfish? Um, well, no, that's not the highest. The okay. highest is that, that organism you mentioned earlier, Campylobacter. Yep. That's the leading cause of bacterial foodborne illness in the United States, and it's traced back to poultry products. However, when you talk about shellfish, there is an organism in shellfish called a Vibrio bacteria that is one of the few pathogens that's increasing in, in the U.S. food supply that is increasing and in causing illness. And, you know, it's a natural organism. It's not one that's introduced like other types of viruses that come from humans like hepatitis can sometimes contaminate water where oysters are grown. And because oysters concentrate bacteria, they become a higher-risk product. On a, on a per-food basis, on a per-meal basis, shelf, raw shellfish are always at the top of the list of, of, for being risky. And it's funny. You mentioned we, we, in the open, you actually – you actually said you, you 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 know I mean I eat raw oysters all the time have my whole life I live in when I'm not in Manhattan I live at the Jersey Shore in Cape May and I love clams on the half shell raw so I guess I guess we've been lucky have you not gotten sick from these yet either Well you know in that I love I'm glad to hear you like oysters a lot too because you know we're examples of folks that eat a lot of oysters and there's many others who don't have these problems and the reason is is that these vibrio bacteria that I'm referring to they're the ones that only attack people that are immunocompromised uh. There's, there's one organism, uh, one species called Vibrio vulnificus. It's in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's got the highest fatality rate, but it only attacks about 50 people in the U.S. per year. So most of us, through our immune systems, our host defense systems, we're able to handle all those bacteria, that, and they don't cause us any trouble. We could have gone on for for the rest of the show. It's a really good book. Again, um, as the holidays come up, if you're going to cook food and move it, if you're bringing dishes to find it, it's, it's like all those questions are answered on how to control temperature, what you can do in advance, what you can't do, um, everything from shopping to cleaning to you name it, uh, how to manage your refrigerator. It's a great book. The Food Safety Book, it's called. I guess Amazon. Where do people buy this stock? Amazon? Yep, Amazon, all the other, all the major uh, outlets online, you can get it. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Keep up the great work, and thanks for this book. Uh, it, it's a keeper. It's a good one. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank, Thank you. Time. Thank you. We're Bye. we're going to segue, I believe, if I could. David, we have eye contact. David and I. Yes, we're going to get thumbs up. That's even better. Um, <laughs> Chef Severe Saran. Hey, Chef, how are you? Good, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So. Um, for, you're probably a household name, but let's just assume there's three people out there listening or that are going to download this podcast and not know who you are. Um, you might remember him if you're a fan of Top Chef. He was on Bravo's Top Chef Masters Season 3. Um, he's got three, has had three books out, Masala Farm, Mas, uh, American Masala, and Indian Home Cooking that have been released, I believe, over the last decade. I know I, I've seen all of those books. Um and and did, did did you get booted off Top Chef because they asked you to make a burger and you made a veggie burger? 
What they asked me, Michael, was a very uh, deliberate question that Bravo had given America to grapple with, was to make a nutritive, healthy meal for a contestant on another show called The Biggest Loser. Ah. So these were people who were overweight, right. morbidly obese, who had made it a lifestyle change to lose weight. And the judges on Top Chef Masters failed America when given this challenge to change the life of a human being who is willing to change it. So when you have an alcoholic, you don't give them little sips of alcohol to change their life. You get them de-addicted, and then maybe a few years later, once they've mindfully made changes, you'd again reintroduce them to doing something in a more mindful manner. So the judges thought I'd failed the contestant, even though the contestant, when after eating the first bite of the veggie burger, said it tastes good. The judges said, but hasn't he failed you in not giving you a 500-calorie version of a, her addiction, which was a bacon cheeseburger? So the contestant was willing to consider my veggie burger delicious, but the judges thought I should have been smarter and given only a smaller version of a bacon cheeseburger that she ate three or four of every day. <laughs> well, look, all right, at the end of the day, they're just making TV. And it had to have been good for your profile. I mean, you know, God knows Top Chef has been a launching pad for so many careers. Congratulations anyway. So you're, you're back story is kind of fascinating. Talk a little bit about, you know, you. So you grew up in, in New Delhi, and you, were, you had studied the visual arts, and that's actually what brought you here to the States, right? It was, was a, a postgraduate in visual arts, right? I came here to study at School of Visual Arts, and I studied visual arts, graphic design, art history, and I fell in love with the, with the city, and New York City had the energy that, um, and the sophistication that I grew up with in New Delhi. New Delhi was the cultural and, uh, I guess, political capital of, in India. And with all the diplomats that lived there over the years, over millennia, we've been invaded by the British, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the French. And then we had visiting invaders. We had old invaders like the Arabs, the Mongols, the Persians, the Turks. India had been in a, a, a crossroads of cultures of civilization for millennia. So Delhi's food has changed over the uh, lifetime of Delhi a billion times. So we, my mother grew up making uh, donuts, making il flotant, which are floating icebergs, making uh, French toast. So when I came of age, the food in my home in Delhi was as varied and as wonderfully comforting and familiar to me as the food of America today is to many Americans. People would be shocked that we were eating donuts in India growing up in the 70s and 80s. My mother would make the best donuts. That's hysterical. So my food is also the food of Americans who have come of age in cosmopolitan cities in the U.S. Now, just, just some technical here. We're having some, some hits on the line here. You're on a landline, right? I am. Uh, maybe it's the cord or something. I, I don't know what, because on our, our end we can hear it, but I guess we'll, we'll live with the, the sound quality. Maybe, maybe it's those, one of those spirally cords that's attached to the telephone that's get, getting shaky. But in any case... Ta- I'm so sorry. No, no, no worries. So tell me about the restaurant you're doing now, which I, I have to... I tried to get in in the past week, but you know this time of year is crazy. I'm just completely booked. It seemed like every night was, every night was something, a dinner, a wine event, or a wine event, and then a dinner, or three things. So tell me about Tapestry. You opened up last year on Greenwich Avenue, and it almost sounds like... You just kind of led into what you, the conversation you just were having about your mom. Talk about the cooking because the menu's really interesting. I mean, you've got like a, 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 a on one of the menus you had a rabbit terrine, you had a Frito Misto. I'm like, this is you know, how, but but all of it kind of through an Indian prism. Talk about the kind of food and how you would describe what you're doing at Tapestry. So our food is a borderless cuisine. It's a food of the different uh, cultures, people, cities, um, ethnicities. 
affected me in the journey of my life. I came to America at the age of 20, but from the age of the earliest I can remember myself, I was a traveler. My parents traveled, we traveled with them. The world was our playing ground. And every stop that we made where I ate something delicious is part of the uh, menu uh, at Tapestry. You can find Mexican, Moroccan, Spanish, Sri Lankan, Indian, all on our menu, depending on which month you come. We change our menu often. If I'm bored of a dish, it's off the menu. If I'm in love with a certain dish and having memories of its uh, magic, it comes onto the table on Tapestry. So the uh, menu is uh, all, every culture is a fair game to our menu. And the only thing that joins all these dishes is the flavor of forwardness, if you will, Michael. They're all dishes that aren't tried, dishes that are very proud of being robust, having legs to stand on, and having this amazing quality that is mind-altering in their uh, billions. If it's a dish that has flavor that can seduce people easily, we have it on our menu. And you're also supplying your restaurant with things that you grow because you 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 have a, a, a pied a terre in the city, but your primary residence is upstate. You've got a big farm up there, and you've got all sorts of so stuff. We have an eighty-acre farm with over three hundred mouths we feed. The uh, pig meat comes from our farm. The eggs come from our farm. The goose eggs come up from the duck eggs come from our farm. And in the summer, herbs and vegetables come from the farm. So uh, I'm one of those rare people that isn't talking farm to fable, but is talking farm to table. But not all of it is from my own farm. So we get other things from other farms. We get some from conventional sources of uh, buying produce, which is not farm to table. So I I don't tell a story. I tell a very um, real-life reality. So we are peddling reality with... uh, incredible produce coming from my farm in the summer and meats coming all through the year. And uh, the one thing that I do sell is a commitment to being fair, to being honest, to being correct, and to being playful in the kitchen. So our food is always alive, is always delicious, and always uh, made with love and care. And wherever the uh, ingredients come from, some come from far because these are spices and citruses that aren't grown in, in New York State. Other ingredients like the pork, the eggs, the cabbages and carrots and root vegetables we bring from local farms that are still growing them even as the winter sets in. So that's our story, Michael. And as a visual arts guy, I just want this. So, so you're in New York at the School of Visual Arts. Whatever led you to decide you wanted to make a kind of a, a turn and become a culinary arts guy? Because that's, you know. I mean, the visual arts could help in the front of the house, could help with plate design, could help with that sort of thing. But, but you know, you're you're sort of exchanging, like, two totally different lifestyles. You know, restaurant business, it's nights, it's fast, it's uh, it's very manual labor. What was it that drew you into the restaurant business? I arrived in New York in 1993, which wasn't a very culinarily uh, speaking. Any, there was no renaissance happening in New York at that point. It was a culinary uh, desert, if you will, even New York City. And the food was shockingly uh, abysmal. And I was, you could go to an amazing restaurant with a great reputation, and the food would be French food, which had almost too much cream and butter, nothing more. And, or you could go to a, something that was a little less expensive and was banal to begin with. And as a boy who had grown up in New Delhi with parents who had traveled the globe and whose table would have seen diplomats and uh, people rich and famous and poor and uh, uh, dreamers all at once, I miss the great, uh, incredibly flavored, delicious foods of my parents' table and those of our neighbors and friends and family. 
And so I would cook every night at the end of the day after going to school, after working a full-time job. I would come home and cook meals, and the meals became very popular. And the next thing I knew, uh, famous New Yorkers and poor New Yorkers alike were coming at my table wanting to eat what a lot of them called the best food New York City was offering. So I went to school for the arts, went to work full-time, and cooked every night. And then the, by the end of it, a few years later, people were offering me money to open restaurants, to become a caterer, to do wedding parties, to do birthday uh, parties. And I ended up uh, giving, uh, giving up on art and becoming a chef full-time. And your, was your first restaurant that – Devi opened when? Because that was on East 18th. It was just off Union Square on 18th Street. It, it was in 2004, and we uh, were the first restaurant that got a Michelin star that wasn't French, Italian, or Japanese. Well, congratulations on all that and your success. Uh, I'd love to go longer, but for some reason, I don't know what we're having trouble with this phone connection. You'll, if you play back the podcast, unfortunately, I don't think my, David can clean this up either. We'll do our best, but um, thanks so much. I will get into Tapestry. I'll let you know. Um, we've got contact information, so I really want to try it. The menu sounds great. Continue success, Samir. I'll come in person to the studio, and I apologize for not doing that today. No worries. It happens. It happens. It happens. Yeah, you got it. The pizza's great. It's worth it. It's worth Take the L train out to, to the Morgan stop, and uh, for the pizza alone, it's the schnizzle. Uh, be well. Looking forward to it. Severe Sharon, thank you. you. Continued success. Bye bye. Be, be well. Happy holidays. Um, stay tuned, folks. We've got another guest coming up. We're going to, the whole back half hour of the show, we're going to talk about. Um, Talk about cheese from a specific region of France. You know the French. I love their cheese, and rightfully so. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna be we're gonna be in Normandy for the most part, and talking about the cheeses of Normandy. It's a great old historic famous region, and like so much of France, it's organized around the AOC rules. So there's all kinds of rules and regulations on what you can do and what you can't do, and what you can call things and what you can't. Unlike America, where you could just kind of like, yeah, I've got Parmesan cheese from Wisconsin. What are you making it with? Don't ask, pal. Um, the French are really picky about their stuff. So we've got Kara Warren, who is a cheese monger extraordinaire, who's been doing this for the last, I, I'm going to say, a dozen years or so, who's going to be talking to us about, here's the three cheeses, and then we're going to go for a quick break. Um, Pont Levesque, which we've probably heard of, Camembert, which we've heard of, and uh, Mimolette, correct? Yes. Those three are what we're going to sample, and we've got some really nice wines we're going to pair with them. So that's what's coming up after this quick spot. And again, the spots, a couple of sponsors that uh, we bring on board here. I think these are two that I brought on board to help pay for this show and other shows on the network. And as I mentioned, if you're listening to this podcast and you like Heritage, you know, we're one of those nonprofits like PBS, like NPR. Uh, we don't charge any money. Everything's free here. We're pretty much advertisement-free, commercial-free radio. Uh, so if you were thinking about contributing and you love what you're hearing on the station, then right before the holidays, while you still have some money in your pocket and it's not 2017 yet, think about supporting us. This is a great week to do it because we've got a two-for-one deal going with the Sheps Collaborative. So if you want to give us $20, someone will match that 20 and we'll end up with 40 We thank you in advance for that. So keep that in mind as you listen to the next half hour, and we'll be right back. Hey folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, 
I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their families moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux Harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, this isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing. Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But if you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For 15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, welcome back. Food Talk here. Mike Calameco, your host. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Before I forget, Happy Hanukkah, all that stuff, because this is our last show until 2017. We go, we go, we'd go holiday mode here at Heritage. We take a few weeks off, more like three, and I think I'm going to miss the first week back, even though the rest of the station will be back, because I think I'm traveling that week. I'll let you know. But anyway... Without any further ado, again, happy holidays, best wishes going into the new year. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Anyway, enough on that. Kara uh, Warren's here to talk to us about cheese. First of all, Kara, tell me, I mean, it's always fascinated with people's backstories. What got you into cheese? Because it's not like you were studying cheese in high school or college, or uh, or maybe you were, I don't know, or no. maybe your parents were <laughs> like some of the original cheese makers in Vermont. Oh my God, so, I wish. No, not at all. So what was it? What led you to cheese? From what to cheese and how? Uh, funny story, I went to school for hospitality management, Okay. and then my first job out was a cheesemonger job at Murray's Cheese. 
you and countless others. Yeah, the College of Murray's, man. Is, yeah, it's, uh... Murray's is on Bleecker Street. It's an institution. <laughs> he's been, I mean, he's one of the, I mean, that store was really, I mean, that and Fairway, if you go back to, yeah, the, back Jenkins, to the day. For sure. Steve Jenkins at Fairway, those were sort of, if you were a serious cheese lover in New York in the 80s and 90s, you pretty much, and Lou DiPaolo for Italian cheeses. DiPaolo's sure. store is always there, so I never want to leave Lou out of this. But, for sure. I mean, that was pretty much it. Um, and then yeah. Terrence Brennan came along with Picheline and Artisanal and Max McCallum's career was launched. Max went from just being a guy nobody heard of that was living on tips from from cutting <laughs> cheese at a restaurant to being like the most paid guy in the in the cheese world. Totally, um, totally. So that so what so you just you just fell into a accident like yeah. so many things happen in life. Yeah, no, I like so I didn't think this was going to happen. My parents didn't expect that. I was just there. I did two years there. I was like, okay, now nah, cheese can't be my whole life. But then all of a sudden, you kind of. You leave it for a second. Like, I thought, oh, I'll go back to college, finish four years. But I was like, something just clicked. I was like, I need to eat cheese. I have a cheese craving. So I ended up, just for the cheese, actually, I feel like staying into it and then falling into a buying gig. And before I knew it, I was, I was stuck. You were, I was the, deep, you were yeah. in the deep end and loving it. I, I was, yeah. And, and the cheese world, it's really like so, it, it's kind of in lockstep with the rest of the food and wine scene totally. in America. And certainly I can speak with some authority about this town. Um, but we've really kind of gone from I don't want to say I don't want to describe the '80s and the '90s as the dark ages, but if yeah. you look at where we are today, for example, yeah. when Terrence was building his calves for affinage, was the same time Rob at Murray said, "You know what? I can do that too." Right. And and I remember like because I, I used to live in, on, in that neighborhood, I used to live on Abington Square and walk down Bleecker Street all the time. And there's this one area of the sidewalk where it's not sidewalk anymore; it's a <laughs> big thick piece of plexiglass or glass or plastic or something. Yeah. But you're looking down into, into oh, his, his calves. Yeah, into, into, into the cave, into the, the entertainment version of a cave. It's it. Yeah, I mean, this is what it's all about. And, I, and the, talk about that. Talk, because, uh, yeah, again, the, I traveled uh, a lot in Europe and, you know, you'd go to France and besides the fact that it was non-pasteurized, I mean, besides the fact that the cheeses were just a thousand times better because of a bunch of reasons, but there was also this idea of ripeness, that there was like an opportune window yeah. of opportunity to eat cheeses. And that was something that we just, you know, American buyers were just like, well, here's the order, put it on a pallet, put it in a container, ship right. it to whatever port, bring it in, cut it into hunks, wrap it up in plastic, and out the door. And that's really not the way a lot of cheeses like to be handled. Not at all, yeah. I mean, when you go to a real cheese counter, you see the care that's taken to it. You know, we wrap it in plastic, and that's not really cool, but it's like there, and then it's loved, at least. You know, if you bring it home and wrap it in plastic, you're basically killing your cheese. Right. So, uh, you know... What happens is, is with the French, they're teaching us a lot about care. Um, and I just started working with the Signe Santmer and the Cheeses of Europe campaign to sort of bring forth, um, you know, the traditions of cheeses, like a Camembert and a Pont Levesque and a Mimolette, because, uh, you know, the American way is great and there's a lot of new wave things happening. But, like, if you really just take a moment to look at the classic versions of, of cheesemongering and affinage, um, there is so much more there that, like, we really haven't quite... Uh, we're, we're just really scraping the surface with it right now, right. to be honest. Right. We're, we're new at it. Yeah. But it's still great because you can still walk into a place like Murray's or Saxelby's now or that new joint on, on Bleecker. Is it on Bleecker Street, the new... Uh, on, uh, you, well, Murray's is on no, Bleecker. No, no, no. Uh, the, the one we're talking about. There's a new one. Is it on Bro Broom or... Oh, the French cheese board. Sorry. Board. Of yeah. course. Yes, of course. That's exactly... It's a gallery of French cheeses, basically, and it's beautiful. Um, we have every kind of cheese from France there, um, from, you know, the aged cheeses to the soft-ripened cheeses, washed-rind cheeses, um, the natural cave-aged ones like Mimolette. So it's pretty awesome, and, and you should go there because the, the people that work there 
know a lot about French cheeses. And, and what is, was it, is it on Prince, Spring, Bleak, or I'm trying to remember? It's on Spring. It's, okay. on, spring it's on Spring in Soho, yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it's very, uh, you'll see in the fashionable area of the city, we have yes, this... Yes, the ever-fashionable Nolita neighborhood. Yeah, this beautiful, shining cheese shop there that you can't miss. Like, you walk by and you're just like in awe, and you're like, wow, that is a beautiful store. What is that? And then you're like, oh, there's cheese there? Damn, that's awesome. <laughs> yes, it is. It's another new area. So let's talk about the cheeses today. The first one we're going to yeah. start with is what? Uh, so we should start with the uh, the Pont Levesque, actually. It's a washed rind cheese from Normandy, from Isigny saint Um But let's uh, take a quick taste of that. It's a very soft texture, silky texture, um, and the outside is kind of moist because it's been washed with brine, uh, which helps develop that rind, actually. I'm silent because I'm chewing. Sorry. Yeah. That's no, no, no. Silence is bad in radio. Mm-hmm. So talking with food in your mouth, but I'll do that. No. So. So what do you think? I think it's delicious. And I have been, I don't know what happened to me the last couple of years. I guess because I live, I moved, I changed, switched neighborhoods. And I guess as we, we just evolved. So I've like a, I've like a shopping habit. I'm in, I'm in New York the weekdays and I go back to my beach house on the weekends. So I do shopping on Fridays and I've been finding myself like going to Saxelby's and going to Formaggio Essex and, sure. and just buying like while I'm at it, buying bread and buy look, get some cheese. Mm-hmm. And I have like become like a cheese junkie. Yeah. Like I eat cheese after dinner instead oh, yeah. of dessert because I'm not a big sweets guy. You know, like four or five nights a week. And the nights I don't, I'm like, where's the cheese? <laughs> yeah, you start to get the craving. It's crazy. And, start- what, and once you figure out the wine with it too, you're really hooked. You, well, there's always wine with it. Yeah. So talk about, so talk <laughs> about the, 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 the milk from this is cow milk. That's correct. All of it is uh, pasteurized cow's milk from Isigny Saint Mare. And this, the original recipe was um, like so much of like French culture, whether it's viticulture or cheese culture, is linked to the monks. Absolutely. So there's yeah. there's the Cistercian monks. That's kind of, I mean, the, the name actually, I, I believe, is kind of roughly translates to Bishop's Bridge. But mm-hmm. so this was like Abbey kind of monk stuff. Absolutely. You know, they lived um, a very habitual lifestyle. So for them to be cheesemakers, it was perfect. You know, they. They woke up, they got the milk that they needed, um, and then they were able to set up and, and wash the cheeses, and then they had their cheese for lunch, and then they could go do the evening milking. So everything was kind of like step-by-step process. And with cheese, you sort of need that. You need that very um, methodical, habitual rotation to, to make a perfect cheese. And so that's, it really, it's really hands-on. Any of us yep. that have been to cheese pr- pr- producers... Realize, I mean, A, it's the art of cleaning. Oh, my God, It seems to be yeah. nonstop. It's, <laughs> I always say cheese making is like 99% cleaning. Exactly. Um, but it's, but it's, all, it's all hands-on. It's all hands-on. So uh, when you, like, bore down for the people that are out there, we, we throw these terms around like brush rind or wash rind. Correct. Talk about that, what that means for this particular cheese. So uh, this cheese that we're cutting, sure. it's, it's, is this square? It is. A, it's a pave, so like a tile size. Right. Yep. And it's about an inch and a half tall. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you can see what the rind looks like. Talk about what's happening before it gets here and what's going on with that. Who's brushing the rind and what are they brushing it with? So, yeah, a brine solution, you know, salt and water. Sometimes it has a, a fortified spirit in there or some wine added, some alcohol to uh, create the bee linens, which is the bacteria that helps uh, grow this mold on the outside, basically, that it creates this rind uh, that helps ripen the paste. And, and that's sort of where this cheese starts to get all that love. And they'll, they'll wash it with a brine solution about every other day. And that's in, uh, you know, in Normandy, France, they're doing this. So you have the terroir-based milk. And then with the brine solution that sometimes has like um, maybe a Calvados or a fortified spirit, not for the Pont Levesque, but, you know, for other washed rinds, this is sort of what happens. You know, again, terroir-based products. So that's how you build the Pont Levesque up. It's flipped until it grows this crust, this rind. And it's edible. Eat the rind. It's half oh, the I cheese. Oh, I always help you. I know. Unless, 
Gosh, I see. And so many people ask me the question, should I eat the rind? I'm like, God, please eat the rind. Of course eat 99, the rind. Unless it's like <laughs> yeah. wax or artificial. I mean, it's part of the flavor of the cheese. I oh wouldn't God, eat all yeah. rind. I would cut it in a way that... There's mm-hmm. a mix of rind and interior. A good but ratio, I mean, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, but that's so much of flavor. Now, the, who picked the wines for this? You picked the wines for this? Uh, yeah, a little help with the French Isigny uh, Saint-Mer company. So uh, this is really yeah. curious. So yeah, when yeah. the wines came, because they came before you, I'm spinning the bottles around, and I know the store, it's Manhattan Wine Company, mm-hmm. Matt Turnabene's place. Matt's an amazing guy. Shout out to Matt. Matt, you're the man. He's all the way over in that emerging Hudson Yard neighborhood. So oh, it's cool. not like a neighborhood now, but it will be in the future. And he's a great store. He's got a great palate. It's a great, great store. And then I'm, I'm sort of I'm like, oh, these are all Matt's wines. <laughs> That's good. And then I'm like, so this one, you picked a Morgon. So we're in, we're in Beaujolais. It's a Gamay. Yep. Um, a lighter and, red. And, and lighter red. And it's funny because a lot of times with cheese, I go white. I just love white. I want crisp. I want acid. I don't want sure. oak. I just love that sort of tension. I, I don't see, like, lactic and tannin working. But this is a light red. It's not tannin. It's, this is probably carbonic maceration, so the grapes were probably whole cluster fermented. Mm-hmm. But curiously... So I'm mm-hmm. chewing cheese. Yeah. I take a sip of wine. For sure. And I'm thinking, I don't know, red wine, <laughs> cheese. And like literally 10 seconds later, as the wine kind of dis- recedes, suddenly this cheese like got amplified. Like what happened then? Like the cheese just blew up. Like I tasted the cheese better after that first sip of wine. Why? You're breathing. You're breathing it in. You get that barnyardy kind of yes, nutty note. From the cheese. Exactly. Which I wasn't getting like on its own. It's like eating... Um, it's going to sound funny. It's like eating some hay or something like that. You know, it's just very earthy, barnyardy. And then you take the, the fruity tartness of a Beaujolais, a very young red usually. Um, it, it, it just kind of connects the dots for you. I don't um, – it's something that you just have to do. I can't really explain it much more than that. I'm sort of speechless when it comes to French pairings like this because they just – fit so perfectly. Yeah, this is one that I kind of thought was going to be a little bit of a curveball, because again, I'm, I'm most often prefer white wine with cheese, um, right. on oak whites. Um, and I'm th- but I'm thinking, well, I'll try this, and so I eat the cheese, and I'm, I'm appreciating the cheese, get a sip of wine, like 10, 9, 8, and then bang. No, Mike, like I'm, you said, the cheese just comes right back to me. Now suddenly, it's, it's totally. more nuanced, it, you're all right, it's barnyardy. Now I'm not just getting like cow's milk, I'm getting like I'm out in the field with a cow. Totally. That's crazy. So yeah. That was perfect no, pairing. It's, um, thank you. It's really, I'll add one last note about this and we'll go into the next pairing. It's, um, it's just the soft reds. They're sort of like a secret for cheeses. Not everyone thinks of a red with cheese, like you said. And soft reds, so, yeah. which is actually where my palate's been. Everyone knows this. I've said this a million times on the show, but I've so moved away from oak, so moved away from tannins, so moved away from over-extracted, big, constructed wines. That That's all I'm drinking now with soft red. So Gamay, Pinot Noir, um, uh, those wonderful that, that uh, the Etna Rosas are fantastic. I love those wines. Totally. Uh, Nerello Mascalese, Schiava, Ruque, all these wines to me. And they will all work with cheese. All right, what's the next cheese and what's the next wine? The next cheese is going to be the Camembert, actually. And then we have a Bordeaux red that... Maybe you'll be able to say the Chateau title better than I can, because uh, my French accent is uh, sort of a Brooklynized French accent sometimes. Hey, it's all right. So talk <laughs> about Camembert, because it's such a signature cheese. It's almost like kind of like a like a poster boy cliche, like Brie and Camembert have been some of the, lo- in this market, the longest. Um, some of it can be mediocre. Some of it's pretty sure. big factory production stuff. Talk about this Camembert, and it's the link of Camembert to Normandy. Um because it also gets confused with brie a lot because they're very, very, very similar. The difference, as I remember it, is, if I'm not mistaken, correct me, in brie they add heavy cream. They're adding butterfat. It's, it's a slightly weightier cheese fat content-wise. It, it, exactly. There's more moisture content in a brie. Um, and the flavors are really 
much different, especially when you're you got to look at brie in two different ways. They have the commercial brie's and then they have like authentic French brie's, you know. Right. Um, and so a lot of what people think brie is is just this buttery uh, chunk of cheese, but it can have more depth. Um, and so but you have to go to France for the real thing, unfortunately. Um, uh, for brie, I would say versus a camembert, uh, like I mentioned, some buttery. There are some earthy notes, but the camembert. It, it, it's more authentic, it, and it, it's the king of Normandy cheeses. So uh, Camembert de Signy is a more mushroomy-flavored cheese. Um, it has a soft, thin rind to it, and the texture is a bit silkier, especially when it gets to room temperature. Um, so you're looking at a much different character than the normal the normal brie, to be honest. Um, All right, let's see. In taste. my humble opinion. <laughs> All right. Cheese time. Cheese time. Cheese time. Am I going to go first? You go first. You go first because I'll I'll talk while you're going first. And we have, what do we pair this with? So we have a, hold on. Oh, my God. You're going to ask me to pronounce this. Who the hell knows? (laughs) Pouilleron. Pouilleron. I don't know what the hell it is. It's it's unpronounceable French. I'm so sorry, France. (laughs) That's okay. So what we have is a, it looks like a right bank. Yep. It's a Bordeaux. It's a a right bank Bordeaux. And it does, it actually tells you we are... Oh, they're giving the secrets away on the back of the bottle. They never yeah, do that for you in France. basically like <laughs> 75 or 80% Merlot, 15 Cab Franc, 5% Malbec, which is, those are the allowed grapes among them. Um, so super fruity. You, I, I don't think this is... This, but you'll see um, what goes great with it is, so you have the Camembert de Signy that is the mushroomy qualities, right? We have that sort of like truffly mushroomy quality thing happening. And then you have the red wine from Bordeaux that um, sort of gets more vegetal. And it, it, you Cab, ca- Cab Franc you, will That's that. a Cab Franc, right, exactly. So once you have those two melding together, you got this like utopia of like earth and vegetal and then you're thinking okay what happens in normandy normandy it's a marshland it's grassy it's by the sea it's the cliff sides you know this kind of like as you eat the cheese you start to get that picture in your mind where it's coming from and it's it's pretty neat it's sort of like um almost like uh music in some ways how it makes you envision certain things when you eat the cheese when i eat camembert i don't know where i got this in my head because i guess we're all creatures of habit Mm -hmm. but one of the things i love to do this time of year, apples are in season. They're crisp. They're delicious. Apples are everywhere. Is to just slice apple into pieces, put a piece of camembert on the apple, and pop it in my mouth like a little, like like a sandwich without the bread. So it's just a com. So while I'm chewing, I'm getting that all those notes from the apple, that acidity, that crunch, that crispness, some sugar, and it just plays off the cheese perfectly. And I don't know why I like those two together. I mean, I'm kind of and and this like it, to me, it's like camembert and apples. Or like a marriage. They're best buds. Yeah. It's totally, and I mean, think about it. They make Calvados out in, in Normandy. I mean, this is, you got the apple brandy out there. It's, it's sort of, again, it all ties together again. It's, um, yeah, a real authentic camembert has those onion, garlic, mushroomy notes. And then you add that apple, like you said, in the tartness, you're just going to win. There's no, there's no loss in that. So kind of a downy mold rind? What would you call this? How would you describe this it? This is a bloomy rind. Bloomy. It's a soft, ripened bloomy rind cheese. Um, it's the candidum outside uh, uh, mold on the outside that really gives it that. And the brown spotting. So customers who see brown spotting on their camembert, that's normal. That's okay. That's that's the part of the cheese. It's a living, breathing thing. Don't cut thing. them. Out. So by the time you're done cutting the rind off and removing the brown spots, oh my God. people. Please don't. don't do surgery to your cheese. Please. <laughs> it's okay. I promise. This is, that was a great pairing. This is great. And I, and I, this is really fun. We had, we had a, I think it was last week I was drinking a bunch of Bordeaux here in the show. You lucky man, before. you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, been a, it's a bad habit. <laughs> so the last one's a funny cheese because this, so this Mimolette cheese, it's, it's, 
First of all, it's a funny shape. It's like a little bowling ball or yeah. butchy Some, ball. Sometimes we say cannonballs. Cannonballs. <laughs> it's got a really scruffy looking surface. Absolutely. So when you try and cut the like trying to cut anything like as a chef. Trying to fillet a round fish, like until you get those first couple of sides off, like a tuna fish or a swordfish, it's nasty because they roll around a lot. Um, it's not pretty. <laughs> and, so, and cutting this is not easy either because it's round and you got to figure out how to get the knife in there without like removing your thumb or an index finger at the same time. I was going to say to all the cheesemongers that listen to this show, put your uh, your mimolette out at room temperature for a few hours before you uh, decide to cut it up. Because uh, you will lose a finger otherwise. <laughs> it's uh, the, our, the cave-aged outside uh, that develops from, I'm going to say it, guys, mites. Um, no, hold on. That's mites. <laughs> M-I-T-E-S. you got to love the French, man. Yep. So there's literally like there's this symbiotic relationship between this cheese and a specific kind of a mite where they like encourage mite infestation for want of a better term. Like how about, oh, oh, controlled mite infestation. Absolutely. Because they, they kind of do this thing on the exterior of the cheese. Mm-hmm. That goes to a lot of what the finished product so is. So there's a, a blue-green mold that will grow on the outside of a young mimolette. Um, and the mites, once they're unleashed onto this uh, onto this ball of mimolette, they eat that mold and they develop this porous rind. And the idea is that the airflow then will develop uh, the paste, the hard-aged paste on the inside. Um, so... It's a very interesting, strange-looking cheese to most people, but um, once you start to eat it, that's oh. when the wow factor comes in. I, I think I hear Mike over here already going wow. <laughs> so I'm going to get is this. Is this a one or a two year? This isn't six months. This is uh, right now. No, no, definitely not. I think this is the twelve month version I brought over. This for is you. so good because yeah. it has that kind of nutty, buttery that you're getting in these aged cheeses. That that's kind of that flavor, almost caramel, nutty, buttery, totally. bernoisette, toasted butter, brown butter, all of those things, and it even it takes it up a notch because it's one of the few cheeses that has like this uh, spicy, zesty thing. It's not just all sweet and pineapple and or like caramelized notes. There's also um, a little bit of a zesty finish, especially. So we have the 12 month, then you go to 18 month, and it goes as far as 24 month. If you go to the 24 month, it's just bitter almost to me, but it's delicious. But so the twelve eighteen month, you still have those sweeter notes. But my point is, there is a zesty finish that not um, there's not any other cheese like this. Really, a Signy Saint Mare makes this Mimolette cheese, and it's the best version, and you can't beat it. It's very similar visually to to Edom. Yeah, so it was inspired by the Dutch uh, back in the seventeenth century. Uh, you know, there was a bit of a money issue, and uh, basically France was forced to make their own version of the uh, Edom, and this is what happened. And the coloring comes from what? It's a natural coloring. but a- Absolutely. Because it has this orange. We never described that. That was stupid of us. We're looking yeah, at it. Yeah, thinking, yeah, sorry, So it's guys. this crazy round bull that looks nutty, yep. and then when you cut it open, it's this really dark kind of orange, like a carroty orange. Yeah, very deep orange. Um, so, you know, traditionally it came from the seasonality of the milk. There was an orange quality in the milk that as it aged got a little bit brighter orange. Uh, for consistency's sake, we use annatto, which is a common, right. uh, you know, plant-based food dye um, that is from a plant in the Caribbean. And um, honestly, it's just to keep the consistently orange look to the cheese. And it, it makes it dynamic in a cheese case as well. I know that anyone that pops by usually looks and is like, what is that cheese? And you're like, um, it's Mimolette. And if you don't know it, it's a classic um, that is not to be forgotten. It's timeless, really. I'm eating. And it's delicious. I know. I hear silence over there, and I know he's just noshing. No, because I, I, like, <laughs> I went in for a second piece, which I shouldn't have done. But I did because it's so, it's so damn good. The wine. Talk about the wine you picked. Oh, oh. Now we're in the white. So we had nope. two reds, which is surprising. Yep. Now we've gone the other direction. Correct. So we've got this really nutty. Also, the texture of this cheese. The other two were sort of creamy, 
at room temperature, you know, almost semi-solid, you know, the kind of inner. This is a dry cheese. It's a harder cheese. Again, we gave you the flavor profile. And now we've got a slightly oaked Chardonnay yep. from France. Chablis. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, what I was thinking with this is you have the uh, Isigny Mimolette, which is kind of like this salty, aged-out cheese. And then so you have salt. And then, you know, sweet goes perfectly with that. So you have the Chablis and that sugar. You're just going to get that really nice, salty, sweet back and forth, which um, is fun to play with when you're doing a pairing. I mean, uh, you have to think about these ideas. It's the texture and, and then the fruit and how it will play, mouthfeel. All that comes into play, and it works very perf- It like works perfectly here. A few weeks ago... I've known Tia Keenan. You know Tia. Of course. So Lady and Cheese. I, I met her during her Casalula days, which is going back probably a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and, she, and back then, so Casalula was this little funky kind of wine bar with a great cheese. Really cool idea. Really cool <laughs> idea in Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I remember like meeting her because we were doing a show on wine bars. And I had with me Fred Dexheimer, who's a master psalm, and Laura Maniac's assistant, Anna, because Laura couldn't make it that day. And we hit about seven places. The last place we hit was Casalula. We didn't get there until 10 o'clock at night, and everybody was pretty wasted. But we still had to roll tape because we got a show to do. <laughs> of course. Um, and I remember like being so impressed because Tia, it wasn't just like the way she selected the cheese and the way she knew everything about the producer, what it was, kind of grass or whatever. But she was also, even a, she was making the condiments. She was making these little things specifically tailored. This goes with, and, I'm, and then she just has this new book that came out called Absolutely. The Cheese Plate, I think it's called, or something like that, right? Uh, the Art of Cheese Plating. The Art of Cheese Plating. See, I'm yep. bad. The yep. Art of Cheese Plating. No Get worries. it? It's a great Christmas gift. She's, she's wonderful. I own it already. <laughs> yeah, right? I figured you would. Yeah. She was, again, that idea of like specifically like with these cheeses, mm-hmm. there's these wines that work perfectly, and then there's these like if you want to go in the fruits or the nuts or the dough. But she all- takes the imagination level to it to a whole new degree that I I know I always thought of in my head, but like to actually form it into words and put it into a book, it's amazing. She kind of takes the French ideas and puts a twist on it, like you know traditional European pairings. You know, they have terroir-based ideas, and, and that is it. But with Tia's ideas, uh, you can be playful. There is cheese sushi. She uses seaweed. She uh, she takes um, spicy, different spices and brings out other things in cheese that I would have never thought of. So props to her and her success right now with that book. Um, it's amazing. Like, really well done. And so... Kara, thanks for, thanks yeah. for coming in. I mean, these were really, really fun. My pleasure. So these are available... So, yeah, Cheeses of Europe has backed the French Cheese Board in okay. Soho. Um, all these the cheeses French are... Cheese Board's the name of the store. Correct. And that's the one we were talking about before that's on, whatever it was, Spring, Prince... Spring and Soho, exactly. Spring and Soho. It's just north of Little Italy. You can't miss it. Yeah, right in the thick of it. Um, and then Isigny Saint Mare cheeses are at specialty stores and supermarkets across the East Coast. You can't miss them. Great time to be in the cheese world. Thanks so much for coming on. Continued success. Thank you. My pleasure. Folks, once again, we will not be live again, I think, for almost a month because uh, the first week that the station is back up, I don't think I'm here. So everybody have a great holiday. Happy New Year to everybody. Eat well, drink well. Eat well and drink well. Mazel tov. Mazel tov on a regular basis. <laughs> Take care. See ya in 2017. Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.